Welcome back into Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay, joined as always by two of my favorite people, Alex Cabot, Ed Lambert of Birch Run Financial. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to be with you. Great to be here, Jag. It's uh, it's November. The Phillies are in the World Series. The Eagles are playing well. So it's a, it's a good time in Philadelphia right now. Unless you're a Boston fan or a New York fan. <laughs> and as someone who is not a huge professional sports fan, I will uh, wish everybody a belated happy Halloween. And if anybody has any insulin I could borrow, my blood sugar is still highly elevated from yesterday. So we're getting there, but it's going to take a little time, I think. feel bad for the teachers on November 1st. I always do. (laughs) Anyway, um, we have an interesting topic today. We're talking about the calendar and we're recording this, of course, on Tuesday, November 1st, one week out exactly from our midterm elections, November 8th. And right now, Seems like everybody's talking about who's going to win. There's prognostication. There's all the guys named Nate who'd figure stuff out. Uh, Investors are discussing the investment implications of the upcoming elections and whether the results will be positive or negative for the markets. So Alex, the data guy, we're going to go to you first. We talked about elections before, stock market performance under Democratic and Republican administrations. What usually happens to the market in the last two years of a president's first term, which of course we're approaching here with President Biden, and what can we glean from this? How much do the midterm results usually matter for investors? That is a very complicated question. And uh, fortunately, I knew the question in advance. So I put together some numbers uh, before we hopped on today. Very on brand of you, Alex. I know. Well, it's it's what I do. It's what I do. I I love numbers. I love data. And it's actually fascinating. This This is something I'll admit. When I first started digging into this, I honestly didn't know what to expect because I've never really looked at it from this perspective before. And there's a reason I've never looked at it from this perspective, because I know fundamentally that it really doesn't make a difference what happens in elections in the long term. The election results are just not predictive of where the markets will go. We've talked about this in the past, where if you have a, a unified government versus a divided government, Republican control versus Democratic control, There are trends that you can see. Typically, the market performs better with a divided government than a unified government, but it's not a tradable advantage because the unified government average return is still positive. You can't just sell out of everything when the government is all the same party and expect to get better results than if you stuck with a game plan and diversified and and rebalanced. But because we want to actually hear some data, I'm going to tell you some data. Excellent. So this is what I did. I went back all the way to President Kennedy, and I looked at the S&P 500's annualized return for the first two years of each president's term uh, from Kennedy through Joe Biden. And then I looked at the annualized return of the S&P 500 over the entirety of the president's term. So it wasn't exactly two years and then two years. Sometimes it was two years, then six years. Uh, In the case of Nixon and Ford, it was two years and then less than two years. Right. Not everything is completely uniform here, but this is what I found. And I think this is fascinating. I'll actually just give you the, the numbers here. The most important thing is I compared the total return in the entirety of the presidency to the first half of the first term. So essentially, How much better did the market do in aggregate over the entire term versus the first two years of someone's presidency? And with Kennedy, uh, the first half of his first term uh, was about three and a half percent better than the average over the entirety of the term. With Johnson, it was about 4.2 percent better. So that's in Kennedy's case, it was 12.9 versus 9.3. 
With Johnson, it was 14.4 versus 10.2. From those two, you'd say, okay, well, it looks like the market does better in the first two years of someone's presidency than it does on average. And that was true for Kennedy and Johnson, but with Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, and then George W. Bush, it went the opposite direction. The market return was better in the aggregate than it was in the first two years. Historically, the first two years of a president's term have produced worse returns than the average total return over the entirety of a president's term in office. On average, since Kennedy, the S&P 500 has returned about 4.1% per year more over the entire term versus the first two years. But it's not a tradable strategy. That's the problem trying to come up with these little gimmicks. Mm -hmm. Because the average total return during those first two years has still been positive. So you can't look at the first two years of someone's presidency and say, okay, well, let's not invest then because on average, the return is worse than it is for the remainder of a president's term. It just doesn't work that way because on average, it's still positive. You're going to sacrifice gain, even though you might be right. Statistically, it'll probably continue on that way, at least for a period of time. It's just not a tradable advantage. There's another way to look at it, too. Since Kennedy, three quarters of the time, the first two years are positive. So three out of 12 presidents had negative returns the first two years of their presidency, those being Nixon, Carter, and George W. Bush. Um, Biden, interestingly enough, even after this year's performance, as of the 27th of October, so from beginning of 2021 to the 27th of October 2022, the S&P 500 has averaged about 2% annualized over that span of time. So even though the market was down this year, uh, Biden's first two years of the term are still showing a positive result. There's only one president's entire term that produced a negative result. Do you know which one it was? Uh, I do only because you sent me some notes, and that'd be George W. Bush, the second Bush. <laughs> yes. Yes. You probably could have gotten there even without the notes. But you look at George W. Bush's presidency, it was immediately after the tech bubble burst. Uh, the peak of the market in the tech bubble was, I think, in February of 2000. Uh, Bush was elected in uh, November of 2000 and was inaugurated January of 2001. So we were kind of on the downslope from the tech bubble bursting. And then later on that year, we had September 11th. Right. So the first couple of years of Bush's presidency uh, produced a negative 17.2% annualized. Eesh. But the remainder of his presidency ended up uh, improving those results because uh, the average total return over the entirety of Bush's presidency was negative 2.9% per year. But remember, Bush's presidency, this is W. Bush, started off right as the tech bubble had burst, and then we ran into September 11th, and then it ended in the financial crisis. Bush left office yeah, very close to when the market was at its bottom. Uh, Obama was inaugurated late January. The market bottomed on March 9th of 2009. So that was a somewhat anomalous eight-year period, but not unprecedented. We've seen periods of that long that, that have been negative. But that was the, the only example since Kennedy where the entirety of a president's term produced a negative result in the market. Mm -hmm. 
I'll say one other thing too about the midterm elections and, and how it, it affects things. Divided government, it is exactly the same principle. And I mentioned this briefly a, a moment ago. The market has averaged a, a return of about 3% more per year with divided governments versus unified governments. And divided governments, we consider whenever there is a, either a split in Congress, so the Senate and the House are not the same party, not controlled by the same party, or if the White House is represented by one party and Congress is unified in the other party. So if you have a Republican president and a unilaterally Democratic Congress, that would, we would consider a split government as well. Right. So again, over those periods of time, the markets returned an average of about 3% more a year with the government divided versus unified. But as I said before, it's not a tradable strategy because even with unified governments, even with a unilaterally Republican White House and Congress or Democratic White House and Congress, the averages that the market produce are still positive. So what do we take away from this? What does it actually mean for investors? The truth is people put far, far more importance on who occupies the White House and who controls both chambers of Congress than they need to. There's a great expression that I've, been, I've known for many, many years is that the business of the United States is business. And I think that was Calvin Coolidge, if I remember right. Is that right, Ed? You're the, you're the historian. That was Quiet Cal. Quiet Cal. The business of the United States is business. Businesses function by selling goods and services, providing what they provide, and, and they try to grow their businesses and expand. The government has some influence with taxes and with regulation and laws. And the Supreme Court has, you know, can overrule certain legislative decisions and make policy changes. But in the end, what drives business is the business itself. It's, you know, what, what drives XYZ Corporation to be more profitable? It's not the government. It's not the president. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not Congress. It's XYZ Corporation. They make the decisions. They reinvest the, the earnings that they have. They distribute it as dividends. That's what drives progress and it, it drives economic growth. I'm not concerned about what the market is going to do in the long run based on the results of this election. You know, we've seen this time and time again where people get nervous about somebody coming into office and just think before Trump was elected. I had so many conversations with people who were positively terrified that the world was going to come to an end, at least economically, if Trump got elected because there'd be so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. 2017, the first full year he was in office, was one of the quietest years that the S&P 500 has ever had. So just because you expect something to happen as a result of a political change doesn't mean that it's going to. In fact, it often means that it's just not going to happen the way you think it is. Uh, the predictivity of that is, is actually very difficult to determine. So we're not making any big changes uh, in the anticipation of election results. Uh, we don't expect the markets to move wildly in the long run based on, on who occupies Congress and, and who wins the presidential election in uh, another two years. So our game plan has always been to, to stay diversified, stay balanced, rebalance when necessary, and let the market do its thing. Like I said, the business of the United States is business. Let's get down to business. What I like about your analysis there, Alex, and again, we're a week out from the election, there's a lot of noise on both sides about whether it's scare tactics or politics, which we don't get into for obvious reasons on this show. 
but you have just looked at the economic data. You've looked at numbers, not opinions, not left, right, blue, red, purple, any of that. You've looked at the numbers, and my takeaway from everything you've just said is looking historically all the way back to Kennedy, there is no magic formula for what's going to happen next week that's going to dictate what to expect of the markets in the years to come. Do I have that right? You're absolutely right. If there were something predictive, we would be making adjustments based on it. But here's the other thing, is that if there is something that's reliably predictive, everybody capitalizes on it instantly. And then it becomes not tradable. Right. Because all the decisions are made the moment the news breaks and nobody else can take advantage of it. It's just the way information moves in 2022, the speed with which the market trades, there's just nothing really to capitalize on, in my opinion. So our, our objective, our plan for, you know, su- subsequent to the elections next week is to look for any significant policy changes that might warrant a slight tactical adjustment, whether it's, you know, favoring dividends over growth or favoring small cap over large cap or favoring domestic over international. Those are the types of little adjustments that might be warranted with a change in the political landscape. But a, a big unilateral move of parking everything in a money market fund so that you can you know, wait out the volatility that you're anticipating, it's a fool's errand. Timing the market, in my opinion, just doesn't work. And we don't want to try. We've said that time and time again on this podcast. And with that in mind, that transitions over to you now, Ed. What are the analysts that you guys follow saying about the midterms and their implications for the economy and markets? Alex kind of looked back. Let's look ahead a little bit. Yep. So, you know, first, I think it's important for us just to review where we are now from a a congressional standpoint. The Senate split 50-50 with Vice President Harris having the tie-breaking vote. So essentially, the Democrats have a slight advantage in the Senate. In the House of Representatives, Democrats also have a small advantage with 220 seats to 212 Republican seats, and there's three vacancies. So overall, this means that if the Democrats are unified in trying to push a bill through, that they likely can do so. In the midterm elections, historically, though, the incumbent party in the White House often loses seats in Congress, particularly in the House of Representatives. I believe that on average, the incumbent party loses something like 25 House seats at the midterms. Mm-hmm. And, and if that were to happen on November 8th, the Republicans would then control the House. For most of this year, the assumption in the investment community seems to have been that the Republicans will likely take control of the House and the Democrats will likely keep the Senate. So every two years, all 435 House seats are up for grabs. Right. And, you know, one third of Senate seats. So next week, 34 Senate seats are up for election. 20 of those seats are currently held by Republicans. 14 are held by Democrats, which makes it harder for the Republicans to flip seats, right? So everything being equal, this math kind of pushes the odds in favor of the Democrats keeping the Senate because they have less less seats to defend. You know, for what it's worth, you mentioned Nate earlier, Nate, Nate Silver in 538. Yep. As of today, 538 currently gives each party pretty much a a 50% chance of controlling the Senate after next week, and the Republicans an 82% chance of taking the House. So what this is all telling us and what the analysts and a lot of these investment firms have been saying all year is that they expect gridlock. So it seems like that's kind of the likely outcome. You never know for sure. But you know, in a situation where there would be gridlock for the next 
two years. It, it's unlikely, like oftentimes when there's gridlock, that any major spending legislation will get through Congress one way or the other. And honestly, Jag, it's kind of been that way since late last year when the infrastructure plan passed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the members of Congress kind of turned their attention towards the midterm elections themselves, right? And there's also a feeling in the investment community right now that there's really very little that the federal government really can do for us at this point economically in terms of stimulating growth or improving inflation. Why is that? With supply and demand being extremely unbalanced, just too many dollars chasing too few goods and services, any additional expenditures by our government wouldn't likely lead to growth, but probably only higher prices, at least right now, right? Yeah. Because we're out of willing workers. So if the government spends more, it's essentially the equivalent of pushing on a string. You can't really get much of a result, okay? There's only a maximum output that an economy can produce. So, you know, there's always the possibility that Congress could cut spending while keeping tax rates unchanged or increase taxes without spending the added revenue to shrink the deficit. That might help with the excess demand a little bit. But, you know, as we know, it's very rare that the government actually cuts spending. And we're kind of in a tricky spot right now where we all need to sit back and let Jay Powell and the Fed kind of do their job with higher interest rates to bring price stability back to the US. And it's all of our hopes, of course, that this can be achieved without a recession. It's a tricky line to walk. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Yeah. And the work that the Fed does is truly independent of Congress. So, you know, the president has said it a number of times this year Congress has sort of acknowledged that higher rates were necessary. So at this point, everybody's sitting back to let the central bank do their job to one, keep employment maximized, but two, to bring price stability back, basically bring inflation down. Now, there was an interesting report that we read a couple of weeks ago from Goldman Sachs, kind of discussing the election and economic implications. Their economics team kind of put this out. Yeah. And the authors of the piece suggested, as I mentioned, that the likely outcome of the election is gridlock. But they also said that if the Democrats keep a slight majority in both the House and Senate, it's possible that it could be tough to get significant legislation through Congress these next two years because of inflation fears on both sides of the aisle. Because hmm. right now, Jag, in an overheated economy with overheated demand, extra government spending, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, doesn't add to growth. It just adds to prices. Yeah. Because again, you're trying to hire people away for government projects from other jobs and you get into a bidding war. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Bidding wars create higher prices, right? If there were to be additional government expenditures over the next couple of years, the Goldman economists estimated that it's possible that the Fed might have to increase interest rates a little bit more than they would have otherwise just to make up for the inflationary impact of any additional government expenditures. Mm. And think about it this way, Jag. Even if a bill is fully paid for over time, kind of going back to the concept of extra government spending right now can't help, it can probably only hurt, a fully paid for bill could prove to be inflationary if the spending is up front and the revenue generation occurs over time. And oftentimes, bills that go through Congress kind of work that way, right? They come up with a bill that, okay, this is going to pay for itself in 10 years, 
but most of the spending is in the first few years and the revenue generation is equal over that period, right? So what Congress kind of needs to do over, at least for now, with the higher inflation appears to be, you know, anything that they pass through, it needs to be fully paid for and it needs to be fully paid for at the same time at which the expenditures are made. Okay. To wrap things up, so likely outcome seems to be gridlock in Congress. It's been expected for a while. So if that's what happens next week, it probably won't be a shock. One thing Alex and I have seen time and time again over the last 20 years working with clients is that often investors believe that if their party doesn't win an election, that election doesn't turn out the way they expect, that the economy and markets are going to crash. That's very unlikely. Market performance has been similar you know, over the long term when you compare Democratic and Republican administrations. But the markets do tend to perform somewhat better when government's divided. And while elections are very important to all of us, we think right now from an economic perspective, purely economics, the most important thing is the Fed threading the needle and getting the interest rate hikes right and getting this inflation under control. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think, again, my big takeaway from today's episode is there are a number of issues, again, that we will not get into here in a, uh, in sure. a financial podcast that are incentivizing folks to go to the polls on both sides of the aisle. But your investment, your wallet, your portfolio, from what you guys are saying, shouldn't really be the biggest factor, if at all. Do I have that right? That's what history tells us, of course. And when you look at it, like Alex mentioned, there are certain times, like when there's gridlock, where the markets perform slightly better than if you have unified government, but it's not a tradable thing. And that is certainly no guarantee that the markets will do well these next two years if there is gridlock. So when we focus on elections as much as anything, you know, we should be focusing on the social issues and the things that are most important to us and not get it in our mind that somehow if the other party wins, you know, that, that financially the whole house is going to come down. Alex, Ed, if our listeners want to contact you at Bertrand to talk about uh, anything related to their personal finances, politics, or especially outside politics, what are the best ways to find you? Uh, I always find information about us on our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com, B-I-R-C-H-R-U-N, financial.com. Uh, you can also send us an email to our general email box, which is info, I-N-F-O, at birchrunfinancial.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you want to call us the old-fashioned way on the telephone, our telephone number is 484-395-2190. No matter how mundane or how complex the topic that you want to discuss, don't hesitate to pick up the phone. We're here, and we're always willing to have a conversation. Contact information will be in the show notes as well. I do have one final question for Alex before we wrap up, because you're a numbers guy. You ever wish you could swap places with like John King or one of the guys on one of the networks with a big interactive map and dive into the counties and the numbers and just this infinite amount of data and having to know all that stuff? Does that stuff excite you when you watch that on election night? I have had a few clients ask me similar questions in the past. And the truth is, I would love one of those touch screens that allows you to pull all that data <laughs> instantly. But I'm, I'm fortunate because I have access to some spectacular software that provides, uh, it's not election specific, it's more market and economic data, but it, it gives me the same level of, of uh, interaction with dropdowns and, and getting more granular and zooming out. I love being able to play with information and data like that. So yes, 
maybe I've had some fantasies about being that guy on CNN or, 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 you know, pushing the buttons and playing with the map. So maybe that'll be my retirement job. Maybe I'll find an in with a news network somewhere. Who knows? All right, so Thursday night, Alex, you will be uh, zooming in and out on all your graphs while Eddie is watching the Eagles and the Phillies. Do I have that right? Yes, primarily the Phillies. I was going to ask. I was going to ask. This is regular season football, but this is the World Series. But it'll be interesting to see um, in Philadelphia who gets better ratings because it is a football town. I was wondering that this morning, and that's probably the piece of data that you can both look at together on Friday. We'll leave it there. Alex and Ed, pleasure as always. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Have a great month. Thanks, Jack. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, not necessarily those of RGFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecast will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James is not guaranteed that the foregoing material is actually well complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against a loss. Keep in mind not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered representative of the U.S. stock market. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Advisors, Inc. Birchland Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Birchland Financial is located at 595 East Sweet Street Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.